Please open your Bibles, if you would, to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. If you are visiting with us today, we want to take a moment just to welcome you. Uh, You are our guest today, and it's a joy for us to have you here. If perhaps you are not familiar with the Bible, there is one in the pew rack in front of you, and I would encourage you to take that today and do your best to follow along. We're actually going to be visiting various passages of Scripture this morning, maybe a little bit more than we normally would, just in order to reinforce what the author is trying to tell us about the assurance that these patriarchs had in their faith. If you were with us over the last several weeks, you'll know that this is now the third in a multi-part series that we've entitled Christ Our Faith. The reason why we're going to spend some time nestled in this chapter is because it's a very important subject. It's a subject of assurance, the assurance of your salvation. And the assurance of your salvation traditionally has come to people in one of three ways. One is that they would read about assurance in the Bible. Now, that's one way to be assured of your salvation, but it's also potentially a way, if you're not careful, to become rather legalistic, to somehow think that you must uh, take these words and apply them to yourself with no real justification for that. And, And what you can end up doing is creating a false assurance if you're not careful. Another way is to look at your life and a changed life. And while a changed life is definitely a byproduct of being born again, uh, there are also lots of ways in which unbelievers can change their life, reform their life, clean up their life, look at these so-called tests in the Bible and figure out a way to pass them and therefore give themselves yet another form of false assurance. What Scripture does teach, though, is that the, the most lasting and powerful kind of assurance is the assurance that comes from the Holy Spirit testifying to your own spirit that you are a child of God. And it's that assurance that is put on display in Hebrews 11. And the reason is that the people who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with Abel and then Enoch and then Noah, moving on, as we'll see this week, to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, didn't have the Word of God like we do. Uh, They didn't have these other two ways of trying to assure themselves that they belonged to God and pleased Him. Instead, all they had was God Himself communicating to them that they are His and He is theirs. I find this to be a particularly uh, important consequence for us as we're looking at this because one of the things that we must remember is that the people that are listed for us as these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant were not justified in a way that is different than we are today. That fundamentally the person in the Old Testament was saved the same way. I'm going to take a moment now to remind you about some of the great confessions of the faith. In fact, if you go back into the early 1600s, there was an assembly that was convened, and it was convened in England without the permission of the king. And this assembly was called the Westminster Assembly, and it was a committee of 121 pastors and theologians. And they gathered together for the purpose of going through and compiling a confession of faith that explains the key doctrines that you must know and understand to be a Christian. 
It took them five years to craft this document. Several years later, there were another group that met at the Savoy Hospital in early October 1658. Most of them were laymen, and what they did was they came together as people who were not part of the, the formal structure of the Anglican Church. They were more independent. And they took that confession of faith, and they crafted it to make sense for churches like ours, independent churches, congregational churches, churches that didn't fall under a state church system. And then, most importantly, in my opinion, especially for us, there was a confession of faith that was drafted in 1689, put together by the particular Baptists. It was later adopted here in this country under the Philadelphia Association of Baptist Churches, but it's probably best known to us as the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And what it did was it took everything from the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration and crafted it within the context of Baptist churches, churches that believe that for you to be baptized, you needed to have some credible profession of, of faith. And that, of course, is our tradition here. Now, what I find most intriguing about this is that they preserved all three of these, some of the most key confessions that apply to our text this morning. And one of them, under the chapter of justification, which is sort of chapter 11 in the Confession of Faith, chapter 11.6 says this, quote, in all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. And the cross-reference given for that is from Romans chapter 4, which is why it was read to you earlier. I give that to you sort of to lay the foundation for this particular study in Hebrews chapter 11, because it's important for us to remember that God has not changed His plan of salvation throughout the course of redemptive history. That from the very beginning, those who were saved were saved by faith and faith alone. It was never a work. It was always something that was done by God, that He gave a person new life, that He took out the heart of stone and gave them a heart of flesh. This is what theologians call regeneration. It means something that was dead was brought back to life. And regeneration always precedes justification. Regeneration precedes faith. Once you are made new, you are then given a gift of faith that you are able to exercise as this act of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then you cultivate that as a habit of faith in obeying Him and pleasing Him. We began this chapter with a description, a definition of what faith is, and therefore we've sort of described these sermons as faith defined and described. We began at the very beginning of the chapter by reading this, now faith is the assurance of what is hoped for and the certainty of what we do not see. This is why the ancients were commended. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You see, hope is based on what you believe. It's a rational hope. We hope because we believe what God has said about the future. The unseen things are realized in how you think about it, how you understand what He has written down for you in His revealed Word. 
the ancestors referred to here, the ancient ones, they were commended so that we would remember them. And the conclusions about God form the basis of what you understand. True assurance then is connected to the trust you have in God and the faith you put in Him. This is something that is only available to a believer. And why is that? Because we said earlier, regeneration precedes faith. And so, this will be the third message then in this series, Christ our faith, faith defined, and now faith described. Please look down with me as I read Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to begin in uh, verse 8, and we're going to take this all the way down through verse 22. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 22. This is God's Word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. When he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom he said, through Isaac you shall, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is God's Word. In all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. The author is giving us here a series of illustrations, human examples of faith that are demonstrated for us and demonstrate for us what it means to have real assurance in God. Now, you'll remember that last week we looked at those three men, Abel and Enoch and Noah. They were men who trusted God, who judged sin, and who pointed us to Christ. Abel was the one who offered the acceptable sacrifice, and therefore it pleased God. It was his faith that made him righteous in the eyes of God. 
It wasn't the sacrifice. It was the faith that he demonstrated in giving the sacrifice. Enoch, similarly, was a man who walked with God. In fact, he walked with God and pleased God in a very wicked age and in a time when there was no written revelation that he could look to to guide him. He had to learn from God himself, and as such, he had a fellowship with God. He had a closeness with God, an intimacy with God. So much so that he would prophesy against that generation and tell them that one day he would return to judge the living and the dead, essentially prophesying the return of Christ the second time before he had even arrived the first. And then there was faithful Noah, the one who preserved a remnant. And from that remnant came the line, the lineage, the house ultimately of Jesus it was through his line that a real Savior would come. And in the meantime, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, he was a herald of righteousness. I hope you find that encouraging today. Because you live in a wicked age. But so did he. He was a herald of righteousness at a time when righteousness was not tolerated. The days were no different back then than they are today. In fact, in some respects, the days may have been even worse than they are today. There was no restraining of the evil like we have today. There was no restraining. In fact, God says that man's hearts were wicked continually. All they wanted to do was wickedness, that the wickedness had reached a level that it has, figuratively speaking, the stench had reached all the way to heaven. And as a response, he says, I'm going to wipe out this entire world. It was into that world that, that Noah was faithfully proclaiming the truth of righteousness, the truth of the gospel. And so it is credited to him as righteousness. We know, though, that Christ is the greater Abel, the greater Enoch, the greater Noah. He is the one who died and rose again to conquer death. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, using the illustration of the ark, immersion into the ark, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, not immersing into water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, being immersed into him who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. That is good news. Amen? That's the good news. The good news. Jesus won, and he will win. He's going to come back in victory. Christ the King Everything that unfolds in redemptive history pointed to the fact that one day he would come to conquer sin and death and hell. And he declared that as much during his earthly ministry. And now at the ascension, we see him seated at the right hand of God, sharing the very throne of the God of the universe, interceding for us, praying for us, contending for us, receiving the accusations that come against you from the evil one and deflecting them immediately to his finished work to say that whatever this person has done, if they are in him, they are forgiven. All sin, past, present, future. They have had righteousness imputed to them, given to them, and Christ himself has taken on their sin and paid for it in full. Beloved, if that doesn't encourage you this morning, nothing will. This is where assurance comes from. And what I find most interesting here in this section, just as we turn our attention to it now, talking about the patriarchs, is that you had here one family, one family mentioned, just various generations, but one family, 
one future hope in glory. The patriarchs and their wives, examples of faith in future glory. They are the heroes. They are the ones that we remember. Now, again, if I might just diverge slightly from the text for a moment to remind you that this all fits in within a great story of redemptive history. There is no book of the Bible that operates independently from the rest of scriptures. You don't have these independent, isolated, siloed sources of truth. Now, they are all part of the grand story that began at the very beginning, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth when He dwells with us forever. Every single book speaks to the book, His story, all redemptive history. And so what we see here in chapter 11 is an overview of that redemptive history, of the elders or the ancient ones seen in Abel and Enoch and Noah, and then the patriarchs in Abraham and Sarah mentioned here as well, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then after that, we get into the period of the, of the conquest and the judges and the prophets and the kings and the smaller, what we call the minor prophets, leading right up until the time when there is a 400-year silence and then John the Baptist comes declaring that Christ has arrived. It's all part of that story. And Hebrews 11 breaks it down for us from Genesis to Malachi. And so today, what you're going to see is the next half of uh, Genesis laid out for you from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 in the lives of these patriarchs. Now let's begin by looking at the story. The story of the patriarchs then is a story of trust in the wisdom and the power of God. Everything from the first day of creation is orderly, it is rational, it is reasonable, it's predictable. God created a world that can be observed and there are patterns that can be detected. Uh, there is proof everywhere. He provides it for us and any honest observer is going to have to acknowledge that this world is not random, that this world was created. And what he says is going to happen and what he says he will do, he will do. It's the measurable data here that adds to our understanding of the concept of faith. Now the secular man doesn't have that kind of confidence, does he? The secular man thinks that you're an accident, that you're just a random assortment of chemicals. And though he may be able to identify some kind of patterns, there is no man of this world who thinks that we evolved out of randomness that would see these patterns as anything but coincidence. Everything is random. And if everything is random, then nothing really matters, and nothing really makes sense, and nothing is really good for you. But God is to receive all of the glory for the fact that He does exist. He exists and we are able to know Him, that He pursues us in terms of revealing Himself to us and allows us to pursue Him through His Word to know Him. There is a relationship. He is not an impersonal force. And we know that because Christ is the one to whom the Father said, in Him I am well pleased. And if you are in Him, he is well pleased with you as well. And it is those in whom the Lord was well pleased that he was pleased to reveal himself, beginning, we'll notice, with Abraham. Now, Abraham takes up the majority of this chapter. Uh, you'll notice they're not equally divided up. They don't get an equal amount of space. It begins with Abraham and Sarah. And then from verse 8 all the way down to 19, it's all about Abraham. 
And then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they all get like one verse at the end. That doesn't mean they're not important. What it means is that the author has a theme, the author has a purpose, the author has a point. And the point the author is making, please notice this, is not to give you a specific history of Israel and of the patriarchs. There are times in the scriptures where those are given, especially in terms of showing you where the Messiah came from. One of the greatest examples of that is in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's speech before he is killed. He gives the entire history of the patriarchs and shows how all of that leads up to Christ. That's not what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. The writer to the Hebrews, please notice it, he is concerned about faith. He's concerned about showing you how each of the patriarchs demonstrated faith. That's the word. Key word is faith. So when you look at Hebrews 11, we are talking about what? Faith. So you can then toss out all the other things, as interesting as they are, about the patriarchs, and you can zero in on what demonstrates their faith. And it's their faith that saved them, made them righteous in the eyes of God. So let's look at that this morning. It's very helpful for us in times like these, because when you look at the world around us and the adversity and the uncertainty that we face, it can consume a lot of your attention if you're not careful. It can actually cloud your faith. It can distract your faith. You can begin to think that you must put your faith in politicians or in laws or in reforming society or in partnering up with other people even if they don't believe the gospel in order to advance some sort of agenda. You can begin to think that it's all resting on you to save this world from its hell-bound trajectory. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you that you don't have to do that. That this world, as evil as it is, is not out of control. As a matter of fact, it's very much under control, and it's under control of a sovereign God who is ordaining every single moment of it. And the uncertainty that you and I will feel from time to time is not unknown to these patriarchs. Abraham is a wonderful example. Let's think about him for a moment, shall we? Abraham was happy where he was. There was no indication that Abraham wanted to get out of Haran. In fact, in those days, you didn't do that. It wasn't normal for you to sort of grow up, find a spouse, and move out of state. That's not how it worked. In those days, you were born, you were raised, you lived on the family property, you took a wife or you were sent to a husband, and you lived there with them for the rest of your life. You didn't go anywhere, you didn't migrate, you didn't travel, you didn't look for a better job in a different country. It didn't happen. What Abraham was doing was astonishing. It was scandalous. Under normal circumstances, we can easily say that he was happy there in Haran, but he left all of that behind. He left the best of what the pagan world could offer, where he was happy by all accounts. And as a 75-year-old who was successful, happily married, he took up all of his vast possessions and the people who worked for him and his nephew Lot and everything that he had, and they became wandering sojourners completely out of the norm. They were doing something that required great faith. Even though, like many of your friends and co-workers, they were quite happy as pagans. They were quite happy doing what they were doing and pursuing what they were doing. 
They chose instead to obey God. It was by faith that he left. It was by faith that he lived. It was by faith that he lived a life that was bigger and better and more exciting than anything anyone could have imagined living back in Haran. But it was all on account of his faith. Now, why do I emphasize that so much? I emphasize it because the deeds can sometimes overshadow the faith. You become amazed at what Abraham did. But the reality is that he only did it because he had the faith. And that faith came to him as a result of his regeneration and the gift that God gave to him. Because God has always had one method of salvation, both in the Old Testament and the New. His faith is what caused him to leave. His faith is the focus. He went out, we read there in verse 2, not knowing where he was going. But he was not impatient. He was not needy of an explanation for anything. He just went. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't resentful. He just went. He trusted God. He had faith in God. And you know, the world is the opposite today, isn't it? The world would tell you that you don't take your first step, it seems, until you've got the next 10 already mapped out. I mean, you know what this is like. You live in a generation that is built on this principle. You would never do something so irrational as to go out there and just begin to live your life or follow what you believe to be God's will for your life unless you've got a plan, unless you've got something mapped out. Abraham did not function that way. He did something very countercultural, and he did it by leaving. But if there is one thing that he or the rest of these patriarchs did... It is that they had this trifecta of virtues. Number one, they believed God. Number two, they obeyed God. And number three, they pleased God. So if you're looking for sort of an outline to describe the virtues of these men, and Sarah mentioned as well, they believed God, they obeyed God, and they pleased God. I mentioned to you earlier that we're going to be looking at some other passages in the Old Testament. So we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. We're going to pick up the story on Abraham, and what we're going to do is briefly understand exactly the the course of Abraham's life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, take one in the pew rack in front of you. If you're not familiar with the Scriptures, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so we're going to stay right in there. All of my cross-references today will come from Genesis chapter 12, 15, 18, 25, 48, 50, so it's going to be right in there. Yeah, did you get all that? Just so you can be prepared. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 12. And I'm just going to read these to you because it'll help flesh out what the recipients would have already known. May I remind you, if you're not regularly with us, that Hebrews was written to persecuted Jewish believers likely living in Rome. They knew all this. What I'm sharing with you would have been something they were raised up believing. But just in case you weren't raised in a Jewish household, I'm going to fill you in on what they would have already known. But briefly, in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, this was his name originally, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So you'll be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the original promise. Now, God codifies this promise with a covenant. Look over at chapter 15 of Genesis. 
he makes a promise to him, beginning in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as a possession. I'm going to prove it to you now. And so he says, go and get some animals. We're going to do a sacrificial system here, which you would have been familiar with. We're going to make a covenant, literally to cut a covenant in the original. Verse 12, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and dark, and great darkness fell upon him. And it was during this time that God makes a promise to him. He reiterates the promise and the certainty that he has that his offspring will be sojourners, wanderers in a land that is not theirs. And they will do this for 400 years, but eventually the Lord will bring them into a land of their own. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he mentions all the lands of the people that would be taken over by Abraham. Now, I wish to stop there for a moment to remind you of something, that though his faith was great, his faith was not perfect. I'm going to give you two examples. The first one was in what I just read. You'll notice that when, God cut the, uh, when Abraham cut the animals and he separated them, the time came for the lesser of the two in the contract, namely Abram, to walk through that alleyway that was created. But he doesn't get a chance to do that because God puts him to sleep. How much faith did Abram demonstrate when God put him to sleep so he couldn't even participate. Oh, how great is Abraham's faith. Yeah, you were sleeping. Abraham had such great faith in God that he would do it while you were sleeping. We forget that sometimes. But use your imagination. When you read the Scriptures, try to envision what was going on here. It was God who demonstrated himself, made himself visible, and then walked through those divided animals, saying that, I will uphold my end of the bargain, though I wouldn't even normally have to walk through there because of the stature and my virtue, it would have been assumed, but I will hold up my end of the bargain, and by the way, I'll hold up yours too, knowing you won't be able to, which means I'm going to have to hold up both at some point. At some point, I'm going to have to pay the price for your disobedience. The second example that I want to give you of Abraham's less than perfect obedience comes in Genesis 18. Look at that. In Genesis 18, the Lord reveals himself again, I'm sorry, um, 17, reveals himself to Abraham again. And you'll see in chapter 17 of Genesis, it begins that when Abram was 99 years old, by the way, this is 13 years after Abraham tried to accelerate the fulfillment of the promise by having a child with his wife's servant, 13 years later at 99 he appears to him again. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Look at verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face. Now that seems like a very humble, prostrate position, maybe one of faith, but I do think that the rest of the color is filled in by verse 17. Look what it says. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. <laughs> we forget that part. Abraham fell on his face in absolute faith in God. No, he fell on his face to hide the fact that he's snickering this whole time. He's down there like, yes, I believe. 
I'm 99. Are you serious? I mean, 13 years ago, it was tough enough. I'm 99. I'm not going to have a child. And Sarah, really? At this stage? You've got to be kidding me. That's what's going on. Oh, well, Abraham, man of faith. No, Abraham had a weak faith just like you and I have a weak faith. Not only that, but there were several times when he didn't exactly win husband of the year because he would go into a foreign city, and the first thing he did was because Abraham was, uh, because Sarah, his wife, was beautiful, like even in her 90s, so much so that somebody he thought would come and kill him in order to take her, he would say, ah, oh, no, 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 she's my sister. Great husband. More than once she was brought into some pagan king's harem. Abraham, the man of faith, the model of faith, had a human faith, a weak faith, a fragile faith, a faith that wasn't always perfect. Be encouraged by that. God, by his Holy Spirit, has regenerated you and given you a faith, but there are days where your faith isn't very strong, is it? You'll admit it, won't you? There are days when you're like, my faith isn't very strong either. I mean, I haven't yet had my wife join a harem, but you know, my faith has its weak times. Take encouragement from these people. Now, it wasn't just... Abraham. We're going to talk about Sarah in a moment too, and she was no better. Look at chapter 18. That's what I was thinking of earlier. Chapter 18, God speaks directly to Sarah. He doesn't just speak through the husband. He doesn't say, well, Abraham's, you know, the head. We're going to just talk to him. No, he goes right to his wife, directly gives the promise. Verse 9 of chapter 18, the angelic messengers say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? This is great. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word there is Yahweh, by the way. At the appointment of time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And he goes directly to Sarah. He wants to promise this to Sarah. He wants to engage Sarah with this. Sarah is the one who then says, in denial of it. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I love that. So great. No, I didn't laugh. You laughed. But you're not alone. Your husband laughed. Everyone laughed. Why? Because it's kind of a crazy story. It takes a lot of faith to believe it. Now go back to Hebrews 11. With that as a background, let's really understand what the text is saying to us here. It was Abraham, verse 8, who, when he was called to go, he left. He was going to receive a greater inheritance. It was by faith that he went to live in the promised land. The promised land, by the way, was not promised in such a way that he said, here's the keys, go enjoy it. It's all been set up for you. That wouldn't happen for hundreds of years. It was by faith he lived there, and he lived there as a foreigner. It was in a foreign land. He lived in tents. He was always going from place to place, setting up tents. And it wasn't just him and Sarah. It was also Isaac and Jacob. Joseph later would be taken into Egypt and still be in a foreign land. But they were heirs of this promise. And verse 10 says it was because they were looking forward to what? To a city. What was Abraham looking for? A city. 
He knew there would be a city for him in the future. Where is that ultimately going to be fulfilled? In the new heavens, the new earth, the city of Jerusalem. This would be given to him. The great hope that he had was not to live in tents forever. The great hope that that Abraham had was not to be perpetually camping. What he wanted to be was in a city with foundations. And he never saw that. He lived out all of his days wandering in land that didn't yet belong to him though it had been promised. He said, I'm going to live in a city one day where the builder is God. Now Sarah, as we mentioned earlier, is also identified here specifically as one of the patriarchs who had faith. She's not a patriarch, she's a matriarch, but you get the idea. She received power. She's the one who conceived. She is the one who conceived on the basis of faith, the faith that the one who said it would be faithful that he would do what he said that he would do. And so as a result, she trusted that from her husband, who was noticed here as good as dead, that's a nice way to be described, isn't it? You know? Have you met my husband Abraham? We're, uh, We're planning on having a child. People are like, oh, really? She's like, yeah. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. He is good as dead, but God said it. I believe it. He was as good as dead, and his, but descendants were born as many as the stars of the heavens. Now, there's a little interlude here. This, again, in Acts chapter 7 is fleshed out for you in more detail if you're interested. But from verse 13 down to verse 16, it's a bit of a uh, footnote. And notice what it says. They all died in faith. All of those patriarchs died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, with the eyes of faith, you could say, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They wanted a homeland. They wanted a place that God had promised. And even if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. If it was just about the land that they could see and understand, they could have gone home. They could have said, we were wrong. We have all that already. I've got that in Haran. I mean, Jacob could have said, I don't know what Abraham was thinking. He must have misread God. Joseph could have said the same thing. Isaac, Abraham's son, could have said the same thing. But no, they said, we believe what dad, what grandpa, what great-grandpa told us because God said that to him, and we're not going to go back to Haran. We're not going to go back to our earthly inheritance. We're going to keep wandering, believing that God will give us the inheritance that he promised because they believed, verse 16, that he had prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, verse 17, when he was tested, went so far as to actually offer up that son, Isaac. He took out the knife. He tied up his son. He was ready to plunge it into his son to kill him in order to carve him up and burn him on an altar because that's what God had asked. But even in that moment, he said, I believe God. I have faith in God. I consider that God was able even to raise him from the dead if this is what had, if I have to do this. He says, I I don't even know what's going on except that he told me to do this and I believe him. I have faith and so I'll kill my own son because I believe that if need be, God will raise him up. And that's exactly what he did, figuratively speaking, the author says, when he received him back. Beloved, Abraham believed God. He obeyed God. He pleased God. But he did not receive from God the great fulfillment of all of those promises regarding the land. Don't mistake this. 
Please don't import your understanding of what the children of Israel later on after the conquest, even though they didn't fully receive it all. It wasn't that situation at all. Abraham wandered as a sojourner till he died without fully receiving from God the promises that were made. Import that respectfully into your own life and your own situation. Allow yourself to let out enough line in your faith to accept the reality that you might not draw in everything you think that God owes you in this life. And things might end very differently than you imagined. And if that happens to you, you're not like anyone else in all of redemptive history. So many people died with the fulfillment of the promises outstanding. Not because God isn't faithful to fulfill His promises, but because God operates on a timeline, on a timetable that is very different than what you and I experience. Now, Abraham's not alone, and in our remaining moments, we're going to quickly look at these last three patriarchs as well. For example, Isaac. Isaac here was a symbol of faith that Abraham had. He was the son of Abraham. He believed that God would provide everything that he had said he would provide to Abraham. He was the son of Abraham, believed. And Abraham believed that Isaac would take what he had been instructed and fulfill it in the next generation. He becomes an illustration of faith. That's why for the writer to the Hebrews, Genesis 26 is so important. If you want to go back over to Genesis again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 26. And in this case, just these two verses should be enough to solidify it. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, and we'll look at verses 2 through 5. And this is what we read. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. You see, God says to Isaac, keep up pursuing the plan that I gave your father. No mention here is made of Jacob's deception of his unbelief, of his faithlessness. Isaac might be wondering, what's going to happen? I've blessed the wrong child. I've messed everything up. My kids are at war with each other. No, he says, I trust God. Literally, in the uh, chapter there in Hebrews 13, it literally says, by faith, even things to come. By faith, even things to come. There's no definite article. It's not the things to come. He wasn't thinking about specific things to come. It is all things, things in general. Even an unknown future. He says, I have faith in God. Just like Abraham, he died in faith, seeing the fulfillment of the promise through the eyes of faith. But what about Jacob? Jacob also showed faith. He intentionally blessed Ephraim over the older brother. This, this is amazing occurrence. Look over at Genesis 48 for the application of this. As Jacob nears the end of his life. He is reunited with all of his sons, including Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph, who he thought had been killed because of the wicked plot of his brothers. 
but he is blessing everybody at the end. But it's in chapter 48 when the author really zeroes in on the significance of this. He refuses to do the normal kind of blessing, which would be to bless the older one first. Instead, as he reaches out his hands at the last minute with Jacob looking on, he has this sort of, or with Joseph looking on, he he plays this sort of trick, and he quickly switches his hands around. And who is on the right now is on the left, and the left is on the right, and, and Joseph sees this, and it bothers him, and he tries to move his father's hands back. He says, no, 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 make sure that you bless the older one, which is ironic given the fact that Jacob stole the I'm sorry, that it's ironic that Jacob is doing this given the fact that he's the one who stole the blessing, remember, from his brother Esau. But he switches over and he instead blesses the younger one. And he refuses and he says in verse 19 of chapter 48, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people. I know that older one will. I'll bless him. But he also shall be great. Nevertheless, this younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. That's the looking forward to that Hebrews 11 is talking about when it references Jacob. And then finally, Joseph. But Joseph made plans for his bones some 150 years in advance. Isn't that amazing? He was like his forefathers. He looked forward to the future in faith, believing that all the promises of God would come true. It was very real. In fact, he even predicted the Exodus. Look what it says there in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus. Did you catch that? 150 years before Moses is born, he talks about the Exodus. Who told him about the Exodus? I believe God revealed to him the Exodus. And and, and he's saying now in making plans for the Exodus, by the way, before you go, make sure you grab my bones. Joseph was an important person in Egypt. He would have been embalmed. They would have looked after him the way they would have like a pharaoh. So bring my sarcophagus, bring the coffin. I want to be buried in my land. Genesis 50, we won't go there for the sake of time. Genesis 50, 24 and 25 talks about the burial. This is what he arranged for. He made sure that his father's body was buried there. He wants to be buried there. Why? Because even at this stage, he was a resident alien and he wanted to be buried at home. Just like Abraham died in his faith, not seeing the fulfillment of all the promises, so Isaac and Jacob and Joseph also died in faith, seeing it through the eyes of faith. This is why that statement is so important in that confession, that in all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. If you are in Christ today, then you are waiting for a final resting place as well, the final city of God. And Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 is going to tie it up perfectly for us. Flip over a page now in Hebrews. We'll get to this section soon, I promise. But this ties it up. Beginning in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet, And a voice from whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a 
beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrified was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that sprinkles a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Friends, you're receiving even this day a warning from heaven. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you are living a hypocritical life, you know that you are not really transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of salvation, not because of anything that you are going to do, You're not going to have to walk an aisle, sign a card, pray a prayer. You don't do anything. Christ Himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerates your heart. And then you understand you have the conviction. You have the desire then, through the faith that is given to you as a gift, to exercise that repentance and faith. But it is not repentance and faith that saves you. It's faith. It's not repentance and good works that save you. It's faith that saves. Just like it was for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so I believe that the very power of the proclamation of that truth is used by God to give life to dead hearts. And so I trust Him to do His perfect work and His perfect timing with those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. And I pray that even today might be the day of salvation for some. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this amazing truth out of the book of Hebrews, for these patriarchs. Thank you for the faith of Abraham and Sarah, both of them justified by their faith, but what a weak faith it was at times. For the faith of Isaac, even though he saw his family torn apart by strife. For Jacob, even though his own sons would turn on one another and see each other dead if need be. For Joseph, who though his sons were born to him in Egypt, not even purely from his line, that he believed that through this line you would one day bring a Messiah. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day when you give life to a dead heart that by the gift of faith they would put their trust in Jesus Christ and that as a fruit of that salvation exercise that third use of the law, that moral law that is demonstrated in their joyful, grateful repentance and obedience knowing that if they are faithful to confess their sins that you are faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness because of the perfect righteousness of Christ given to them. Do this for your own glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.